0: hey church welcome to episode four of our series love works and tonight we are discussing how to love your enemies now there is no how to guidebook book on loving your enemies if there was it wouldn't be so difficult you see all of us see people struggle with loving their enemies and all of us have personally experienced the difficulty of loving enemies. Nobody is immune from having enemies. There's no amount of positivity that can vaccinate you against having enemies. We all have them. They're in our life, and it's a, a constant reality and a struggle to love enemies. And I've struggled with this too. Have enemies in my life and have, a, have difficulty even understanding how I might love them. You see, I think most of us sort people into five different camps. You have one camp, which is your lover. Then you have your family. Then you have friends. Then you have acquaintances or allies. And then you have enemies. And especially those last three camps, friends, allies or acquaintances, and enemies, those camps are very dynamic. People can move up and down the ladder of relationship with you in that regard. Friends can become enemies. Acquaintances can become friends and become enemies. And enemies, by God's grace at times, can become friends again. This is what it's kind of like to deal with relationships, to exist in a world where our relationships are constantly changing by how we treat people and how people treat us. And I've struggled with this. To know, how do I treat my enemies? How do I love my enemies? Because I have them too, just like you. I have people that have betrayed me. I have people that have talked behind my back and gossiped about me. And I've put them in the enemy camp. I have people that have came to me to to be a friend or to be an ally only to find out that they were using me for their gain. And they went down the ladder to enemy. People that have misunderstood me and never sought to understand what i'm saying and so they therefore labeled me a certain way and treated me a certain way and they've gone down to enemies people that are, are so constantly looking at me to to tear me down or to pull out all the issues in my life and they're failing to recognize the issues in their own life and that person has become an enemy and i've struggled to understand you know, how do i love them? How do I treat them? Even at times, to be honest, how do I tolerate them? Loving your enemies is not an easy thing. In fact, even those words together feel like a paradox. Love and enemies. I mean, how do those things go together? It's not easy. And certainly we have degrees of enemies, right? There are are some people that have deeply wounded and harmed us and To even fathom showing any type of love to them is almost impossible. And then there are people that were friends and recently they have become more like enemies because of something that was said or done. And there's degrees to this, but still it it remains difficult to, to understand how to love. And so most of us don't. We ignore or even we hate our enemies. And oftentimes what happens is when we put somebody in the enemy camp, we wait for them to prove to us that they're worthy of being taken out of that and becoming an ally or acquaintance once again or becoming a friend once again. We want them to prove to us to earn our trust back. We use that word a lot, right? They have to earn our trust back to move back up into a different camp and a different type of relationship with us. This is how most of us function with our enemies. But that's not God's word. It's not what God's word says regarding how we are to treat our enemies. But it's our reality. So what we're going to dive into tonight is a passage here in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus talks about loving your enemies. And we're going to unpack how do you do that. What does it look like? What is God's operating method for us as his people and as followers of his way to treat our enemies different than society would tell us, but to love them well? And so God's word comes to us in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this in verse 43 through 48. He says, You have heard it said... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, here Jesus is speaking about the importance of loving your enemies. Look at verse 46 again with me. Verse 46 says this, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same see jesus is saying that a follower of christ a person of the kingdom of god loves their enemies it is a distinguishing mark of a christian of a follower of god of a person of faith that they seek to love their enemies jesus says here what is it if you just love those people that love you If you only love those who love you in return, you are no different from anybody else. Everybody does that. Jesus uses the example here of a tax collector. A tax collector is like a modern-day mafia boss. Tax collectors would have roamed around with Roman soldiers at their side and extorted people for money, like I imagine mafia bosses do with hitmen. And Jesus is saying, even tax collectors, the most immoral kind of evil of society at least the way that they're labeled even they love people that love them in return so if you don't love your enemies you are not bearing the very distinguishing mark of a follower of christ of a person of faith to love god is to love your enemies it's important jesus says that again in verse 44 and 45 when he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father, sons and daughters of your father who is in heaven for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He says that you're to love your enemies and you're to pray for those who persecute you so that you may prove that you are sons and daughters of of your Father who is in heaven. Meaning, so that you might reveal that you are a child of God. A person that loves their enemies reveals that they are a follower of Christ and a child of God. It is a distinguishing mark. And so it's very, very important. But not easy to do. Not easy to at all it is easy to hate it is not easy to love and i love what he says here at the very beginning as well in verse 43 he says you have heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy but then he goes in the next verse we just read but i tell you you should love your enemies you see what was taking place during this time and the conversation among people which is the same one that we have now is a, a desire to distinguish between neighbor and enemy. So it's, like, it's very clear in God's word that it kind of boils down to love God and love others or love your neighbor. And so there's this conversation that Jesus is combating, which is to distinguish neighbor from enemy. Like, yes, of course you're supposed to love your neighbor. So maybe as we saw two weeks ago in the story of the Good Samaritan, it could be a stranger. Your neighbor could be a co-worker. It could be a literal neighbor, that you're to love your neighbor. But there's a difference between neighbor and enemy. That's why Jesus says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say, love your enemies. Jesus is saying, your enemies are part of your neighbors. There is no distinguishing. You don't get to choose to not love your enemies and to hate them. No, you're supposed to love them too because it is, is it a distinguishing mark of a follower of Christ. It is important. So here's what we will see in God's word this evening. That love works with your enemies through boundaries and blessings, through distinguishing anger from hate and prayer. Through boundaries and blessings, distinguishing anger from hate and prayer. First up, love works through boundaries and blessings listen healthy boundaries are important in every relationship that you have it is very important to have boundaries good boundaries they ensure that you are capable of caring for yourself and others well boundaries are important jesus had boundaries he had plenty of boundaries we read about it time and again We read about Jesus having boundaries with the crowd that is following him. The crowd is constantly demanding things of Jesus, and Jesus is constantly keeping boundaries. He retreats from the crowd. He will sometimes get in a boat with the disciples and go across the Sea of Galilee to a different city to get away from the crowd as they're demanding things upon him. He doesn't fold. He has boundaries. We see Jesus create boundaries with his family, with his brothers and his mother, In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus' mom and his brothers are, are trying to pull him out of ministry and are requesting things of him, and Jesus sets up boundaries. We see Jesus set boundaries with Herod, who would have been labeled his enemy. Herod wanted him dead. And when Jesus is arrested before he's crucified, he's taken to Herod, and Herod is demanding that he answered the question and to reveal and show a sign why he's the Son of God. And Jesus gives no answer. And it says this that Herod, and remember this, he held him in contempt. He hated him. But Jesus sets a boundary that he will not cross. Jesus even sets boundaries with his greatest enemy, the devil himself. When Jesus goes into the wilderness, to fast and pray, and the devil comes to tempt him, Jesus sets up boundaries. The devil is constantly trying to push on those boundaries. He's trying to get Jesus to, to reveal certain things, to show certain things, to reveal his glory, his power, to follow his leading. And Jesus constantly maintains a boundary. and He says... You do not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus maintains healthy boundaries with friends, with crowds of people, with his family, and with enemies. You see, good boundaries are important. And having good boundaries with enemies is wise. It's wise. Jesus reveals that. But here's the key. Here's the key. It's important to create boundaries but still be able to bless. To have boundaries, but still be willing and capable of blessing. Romans chapter 12, verse 14 says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Your enemies, the people that curse you, the people that persecute you, the Apostle Paul says, In Romans, bless them. Well, here's the question. What does it mean to bless those who persecute you? How do you bless your enemies? How do you do that? Well, Jesus tells us in the earlier part of Matthew chapter 5, our passage this evening. He says this in verse 38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. See, Jesus is saying something very striking here. See, the Jewish audience that Jesus is speaking to understood that their system of justice was very fair. It was equitable. I mean, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. There is equality there. It is a superior form of justice compared to the other nations of the day where it's not an eye for an eye, it's an eye for your head. So Jesus says, You've heard it said an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But then he says that you're to bless. See, we don't operate in that fashion. We operate maybe an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Sometimes our justice that we enact and we desire is fair and equitable, but not always. Oftentimes we operate like the other nations, you know, We're harmed and we want to inflict harm on other people because when we're hurt, when we're affected, when we're cursed, when we're persecuted, when someone becomes an enemy in our life, now what do we want? Vengeance. We want revenge. And maybe we don't carry it out, but we want to see it. Vengeance. And vengeance is a destructive illness of the heart. Jesus knows this and he's preaching against it. It is a very destructive illness illness of the heart. And vengeance is fueled by offenses. When someone offends you, when they curse you, when they persecute you, it fuels this vengeance, this bitterness, this resentment. And it leads you to close off your heart and to create a barrier around your heart where you want to see harm and pain inflicted on your enemy that has hurt and wounded you you but listen don't build a fence because of an offense Say it again don't build a fence because of an offense try to say that really fast it's very difficult I tried it earlier don't build a fence because of an offense see when you build a fence around your heart because somebody has offended you what happens is you begin to harbor bitterness You begin to hold on to revenge. Your heart begins to harden. You are incapable of loving them. All you're really capable of doing is hating them and wanting to see revenge, wanting to see retaliation, wanting to see them have the same kind of pain inflicted upon them that they inflicted upon you. When you build a fence around your heart because of of an offense, it is destructive to your heart. It's destructive to your relationships as well. It's destructive to so many things. It will affect your relationships, even your good ones, when you build an offense around your heart because of an offense. It will affect your mental health, keep you from experiencing peace. You'll feel the weight of that vengeance and desire for retaliation. It will lead you to a distorted view of love. A view of love, which is, if I'm not feeling like we're in a good relationship, if I'm hurt, if I'm feeling negative emotions towards you, you have to earn my love back. It's a distorted view of love. And it will even lead you, if we're honest, it will lead you to celebrate when your enemy fails. To celebrate when your enemy is in pain. It's destructive. It destroys your heart. It will isolate you from love and from peace. See, what Jesus is saying here, he's combating that that internal desire that we feel towards an enemy to hold on to vengeance, to want to see retaliation, to build a fence around our heart towards them to keep them out. To have a boundary is good but not build up a fence where you're incapable of of loving them, where you just have bitterness and revenge. Jesus is saying, let go of that. Let go of that. Why? You can let go of it because it's not yours to hold on to. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21, the apostle Paul understood this. He says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought what what is honorable in the sight of all give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all don't repay evil for evil you've been harmed you've been persecuted you've been cursed don't repay evil but think about what you can do that is honorable and good wow if possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all to the best of your ability try to live peaceably with all including your enemies Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Not us, says the Lord, he will repay. To the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, bless him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink bless him for by doing for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head maybe you will humble him there will be transformation and possibly even a restoration of your relationship but do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good you see the jewish system of justice was fair It felt good. Eye for an eye. Tooth for a tooth. Jesus says turn the other cheek. You've been harmed. You've been wronged. You've been hurt. You've been persecuted. You have an enemy. It's good to have a boundary. That's wise. But don't build a fence to where you harbor bitterness and anger and hostility and seek vengeance and retaliation. Turn the other cheek. Bless them. You see, Don't seek fairness. Seek to bless. Wow. Don't seek fairness with an enemy. Seek to bless them. If they're hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. If they want to sue you and take your tunic, give them your cloak too. If they try to force you to go a mile, go the extra mile. Have boundaries, yes. But bless. And many of us even thinking about this we struggle to consider how we might do this oftentimes because we have maybe had experiences before with friends that became enemies and we tried to offer a hand we tried to help we tried to love we tried to to support we we tried to do something to restore the relationship and we got burned we tried to show mercy we got hurt And so we're very hesitant to maybe take the risk of blessing someone, especially someone that has hurt you before, because you don't know the outcome. Makes me think about the Greek myth about the Minotaur. The story goes like this there's a king of Crete, King Minos, and he had this terrible monster that was his pet, the Minotaur. He lived in a maze on the island. And he was constantly bored because the island was pretty boring, but they had a huge navy and he would constantly go and attack Athens, which at the time was a smaller city, just for fun. And Athens couldn't catch a break and so the king of Athens is trying to figure out how how do we protect the city and enable us to to grow a navy and to, to build our city. We're constantly getting attacked by King Minos. And so he has an idea. He says, don't attack us for nine years and after nine years we will send you seven boys and seven girls from Athens that you can feed to your pet minotaur. And King Minos doesn't really care about attacking Athens. He's bored and he loves his minotaur. So that's a great deal. So they don't attack for nine years and the nine years is up and now it's time to send the boys and girls. But the prince feels like this is an unfair deal, an unfair arrangement, and he wants to help establish Athens. So he says, send me as the seventh boy, and I will go, and I will defeat the Minotaur, Prince Theseus." So he goes across, and he gets there, and when he gets there, the princess sees him, and she falls for him, and has compassion and mercy towards him. Princess Ariadne. And so she slips him a note, And says, I know how to defeat the minotaur. Meet me later tonight. And she meets with him. And he says, listen, how do I defeat the minotaur? And she says, take this string and take this sword. Hide it inside of the maze. And when you go in in the morning with the boys and girls and they close the door behind you, tie the string around the doorknob. Keep the children near the door. You go with the string through the maze and the sword. When you find the minotaur, slay the minotaur and then follow the string back. The only thing I ask of you that you take me off the island with you because i want to go to athens i hate this island i'm so bored here he agrees it's all set up it goes according to plan follows a string takes a sword kills a minotaur goes back the children are saved they they escape quietly to their ship he takes the, the princess with him and they sail off of crete on their way to athens sounds like it's a hero story but they stop on this small island to get new supplies The princess is bored on the ship, so she's, I'm going to get off on the island. So she goes off, she looks around. There's really nothing to do on this small little island. She falls asleep. Prince Theseus gets the children, gets on the boat, sails off quietly and leaves her there. He goes off to Athens. That's how the story ends. See, she thought she was going to get Athens, and she got a small island by herself. She thought that this prince was honorable, only to realize he was very much the opposite. She showed mercy and compassion and literally saved the life of this prince, and he showed her no concern and no generosity. See, I think a lot of us feel like the princess, we feel like Princess Ariadne. Where where we we show compassion to people, we show mercy to people, we we, we try to help save people's lives and direct them in the right path, we give them instructions that lead to life. We put ourselves out there, and then we get burned. Then we get hurt, and we receive no generosity in, in, in response. We have people that don't even care for us. And so now we approach relationships very reluctantly, especially with enemies. Is it worth the risk? I don't know the outcome. What if, what if what I do for them and what if showing love for them enables them to harm me? We fear that. That tension. And Jesus says this. Bless those who persecute you. Bless those who persecute you. Keep giving the string out. Keep arming even your enemies with the very sword they need to destroy the monsters in their life. Keep giving people the instructions that lead to life, even though you don't know the outcome for yourself. It's not love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. And I think many of us never even get to this point where we're capable of having healthy boundaries and blessing our enemies, because we have failed to distinguish anger versus hate. We are so clouded with hate, and we have not distinguished it from anger, that we cannot approach a place to have healthy boundaries and where we're capable of sh- of blessing our enemies. See, anger and hate are two different things, or you could say contempt. Anger and contempt, two different things. Anger is actually useful if it's fueled by righteousness, if it's righteous anger. Anger can lead you to actually establish those healthy boundaries. Anger says, I care about this, or I care about this person, and that's why I'm angry at the destructive patterns in their life. But hate and contempt is very different. Hate and contempt is anger plus disgust. It's disgust. It's to say, this person, this issue is beneath me. I am unconcerned. I care nothing of it. That is what it means to hate. You see, Jesus shows anger all the time. He shows anger not contempt and not hate and not disgust he shows anger when jesus comes into the temple which supposed to be a house of prayer and yet it's become a den of robbers this marketplace jesus flips over the tables in anger to prove a point to lead people back to a path of healing to to restoration with each other and with god it's righteous anger he could have walked in if he had hate if he had contempt He would have looked at it and just walked out like, these people, I'm going to leave them to their own destruction. They're beneath me caring about. But he didn't. We see Jesus get angry when the disciples try to keep the children from him. He says, no, let the children come to me. You don't understand. We see Jesus get angry at the religious leaders who are putting rules, unnecessary rules on the people. We see Jesus get angry when people have self-righteousness and selfish ambition. We see Jesus display anger, but never contempt or hate or disgust. In fact, we read in Ephesians 4.26, this is so interesting. The Apostle Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Be angry and do not sin. How can you be angry and not sin? See, you sin when your anger attaches disgust to it. That's when it becomes hate and contempt. When your anger leads you to have disgust. To think that you're above someone else. That their problems are not your concern. When you lose your ability to care. And this is where we struggle. I'll be honest, I'm in this too. We're all in this boat that we have this habit of hate. We have a habit of hate. It is all around us. Contempt and hate, we're constantly being fed it. It is constantly before our eyes. And if we're honest, we're consuming it. What what kind of contempt do we see around us? We see political contempt. We see relational contempt. We see workplace contempt. We even see contempt in the comment sections on YouTube or even on Yelp disgust for the restaurant because the server took five extra minutes to bring the drink that I was entitled to receive in this amount of time. We are in a habit of hate because it's all around us and we're constantly consuming it and it's very difficult to break. We're actually addicted to contempt. We're addicted to hate and an addiction is very difficult to break See, whether it's an addiction from substance abuse to TV watching to, as we're discussing here, hate and hate towards enemies, it's difficult to break because we will choose suboptimal, we will make suboptimal decisions that we know will affect us negatively in the, in the long run because we know that the barrier, the hurdle is so high to jump over in the short term to break that habit. And so that's why we'll say things like, I'll change tomorrow. I'll stop tomorrow. I'll think different tomorrow. I'll treat them different next time. It's always tomorrow. It's always the next time because we're in a habit that's hard to break. We're in a habit of hate. It's why it's so hard for us to love our enemies because if we're honest, We're addicted to hating our enemies. It feels good. It feels like justice. It feels like equity. But it's not the way we're meant to live. We're meant to have healthy boundaries, to bless, to have anger, but not hate. And so how? How can we actually love our enemies? How can we actually distinguish rightly from anger and hate and seek to break that habit of hate that we may have towards people in our life that could lead us to actually blessing them and others? How do we do this? Well, see, when you're addicted to something, addiction recovery requires intervention through a friend, through a family member, through a program, through a retreat center, there's an intervention that is necessary. And successful recovery from addiction requires the addict to be willing to step into that recovery program, to allow that intervention to happen in their life. And the intervention for us, church, that can help to break down that hate. Help us to get over that high wall of having contempt for people. Of feeling like it's okay to love neighbor and hate enemy. The intervention for us is prayer. Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those who persecute you. We need the intervention of prayer and we need to actually be willing to pray for our enemies. We need to be willing to pray for our enemies. Verse 44, as Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is so challenging though. It is challenging. But if you are willing to commit to praying for your enemies, you allow that intervention in tonight, you will see that it is freeing And it is humbling. When you pray for your enemies, it will free you. It will free you from holding on to revenge. It will free you from feeling like you need to sit on the seat of judgment. It will free you from that distorted view of love that you're maybe bringing into other relationships. It will free you from carrying the wounds of that relationship into others too. It will free you. And it will humble you. You see, when you pray for your enemies, it humbles you in two ways. It reminds you that you are also viewed as an enemy by other people. There are other people that you have hurt and that you have wronged, that you have cursed, that view you as an enemy. Reminds you that you're flawed, that you're broken that you make mistakes in relationships that have negatively affected other people. And it reminds you that you were once an enemy of God too. That you're an enemy to other people because of your sin and your poor decisions in relationships and you were at one time an enemy of God. It humbles you. That's why Jesus, I think, says in verse 48 something that kind of jumps out telling you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that this is a distinguishing mark of a follower of Christ he says in verse 48 look at this you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect well we've already failed at that in so many ways but certainly in this way loving our enemies none of us can perfectly love our enemies so what Jesus is saying here See, he's telling us that the path of perfection is not walked through your own effort. The path of perfection is not walked by you saying, I'm just going to get better this week at loving my enemies. You will fail at that every time, just like me. The path of perfection is walked through prayer to the one who is perfect in your place. The path of perfection is walked through prayer that frees you and humbles you because you're praying to the very one who was perfect in your place. It reminds you this path of perfection has walked in prayer, that you did not deserve any blessings and yet you were blessed with the greatest gift of all, the gift of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, for our sake, He, God the Father, made Him, Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that, we, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin so that we might be the righteousness of God. We have received the greatest gift, the gift of salvation, the gift of the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus became our sin so that we might be righteous, and that we might no longer be called enemies of God, but as we said last week, friends of God. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10: For while we were enemies, we were reconciled by God, to God by the death of his son. While we were enemies, we were reconciled in relationship to God called friends because of the death of His Son, Jesus Christ. You were an enemy of God, and yet you've been reconciled. Because though God had boundaries, and His boundary was perfection, which you cannot accomplish, He blessed you. He blessed you with His own Son, Christ, who gave His life for you, so that through faith in His death and His resurrection, you might be reconciled to God, no longer an enemy but a friend, no longer marked by sin but covered in the righteousness of Christ. See, church, that's true of us, which it is. We should be people that are praying for our enemies, that accept that intervention and are willing to go on that path of recovery of praying for our enemies. So that we might have healthy boundaries and still bless them. That we might have anger and not sin by becoming contemptuous. Pray for our enemies, even if through tears. Jesus, when he's going into Jerusalem on the week that he knows he'll be crucified, he looks over at the city that will soon, in just a few short days, be shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. And he prays and he weeps. It's okay to pray through tears. Jesus on the cross, when He's giving His life for us as enemies of God, He thinks about you and me and the very people before Him that hung Him on that cross and He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, love works, church. Love worked on your behalf through the death of Christ so that you might no longer be an enemy of God but a friend of God. See, you have a need for a Savior just like your enemies. And God has provided that blessing. So would we also seek to pray for our enemies? Would we also seek to love our enemies? Have healthy boundaries, but bless them. Because that is the mark of a person of faith. Would that be the mark on our life too? Will you pray with me? God, I just pray that you would humble us, that you would even bring to mind those people that we have placed in that camp as enemy. As hard as that may be to consider the wounds and the pain, would you first let us know whether or not we have healthy boundaries with them? So that we might establish those because it is wise. And you show us that, Jesus. But then, what we ask ourselves whether or not we are harboring bitterness do we have hate and contempt and disgust for them that has built up a fence around our heart so that we cannot bless them? Would you reveal that to us? And would you send all of us this week on a road to recovery that is marked with prayer? praying to you, God, that you would heal our heart, but that you would also heal the heart of our enemies. Let us be people of prayer that love our enemies, not hate them. pray this in Jesus' name, amen.